going to finish our uh, series tonight on biblical apologetics. Uh, this is going to be kind of the application of those things that we've taught, learned, heard thus far. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 17 through 21 states this, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Amen. So when we come to the Lord, we are new creatures. We are completely, completely new creatures. One preacher put it this way, we are an entirely new species now. Naturally, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, everything is brand new. 1 Corinthians 1.23 says this, But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. Now, in this verse, we see represented two different challenges to preaching the gospel. Under the Jews, the crucified Savior is a stumbling block. Under the Greeks, it's foolishness. There are two sermons in the Bible that are very different from each other and serve to illustrate these differences. Uh, the first one is found in Acts chapter 2. This is uh, Peter preaching the very first sermon after Pentecost. He was preaching to a Jewish uh, audience. The second is in Acts chapter 17, where we find Paul preaching to the Greeks at Areopagus. They are sermons that have the same goals. They have the same desired outcome, the salvation of the lost. But they approach it very differently. I'm not going to go through the whole sermon, uh, but Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 36 details that first message that Peter preached. In that message, we see him quoting a lot of scripture. We see him referencing the Old Testament, the prophet Joel. We see him talk about Jesus and how through Jesus, God brought to pass Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. And that at the end, after demonstrating that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, he says, and you crucified him. And they were smitten. And they wanted to know, what, what, what can we do about that? 
How can we be saved? What shall we do? Peter goes on to, to uh, preach Acts 2.38 to them. New Testament salvation. So Peter quoted scripture. Joel's prophecy, he quoted Psalms. He points to experience. He pointed to the miracles and signs that were done by the hands of Jesus to show that God himself confirmed that he was indeed the Christ. And that God had resurrected Jesus according to the scriptures. He raised himself from the dead because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. And then Peter goes on to make the altar call. Told them very plainly that they were guilty of slaying their Messiah. The one that God had made both Lord and Christ. This worked for this particular audience. And we've, we've touched on different aspects of this throughout this lesson. But they were a Jewish audience. They understood that God was their creator. They understood that the word of God was supreme, that it was infallible, that it was uh, right altogether. They understood that. They had a very solid foundation in Old Testament scripture. There really was new, no New Testament scripture at this point. It was all Old Testament. That's why they were quoting Old Testament. That's why it's important for us to know the Old Testament. It confirms the New Testament. So they did this. They quoted scripture. They quoted uh, prophecies. They pointed to how God confirmed through signs and miracles that Jesus was the Messiah. Language that the Jews would understand. Built on a foundation that they've already, they already had. Now we see an entirely different scenario in Acts chapter 17. And I will read this one because it's a little bit shorter and we'll spend a little bit more time. Acts 17, chapter 22 through 31. It says this, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelling not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed in the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him, and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorant ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Now we see some differences here. 
Paul didn't quote scripture to the Greeks. There were no prophecies given. But what they did start with, what what Paul did use, is the truth the listeners already had. He started with where they were at. And using that springboard, he presents the Christian position. First, verses 24 through 26, that God is the creator of everything. The Greeks understood that if this was true, then he is in charge, he writes the laws, and we are obligated to obey them. If that's true, then we need to find out what those laws are. And obey. He also states that God made all peoples and nations of the earth, that they are of one blood, that we all have the same common ancestor, Adam. And that God is sovereign and sets the boundaries of nations and men and their allotted time on earth. He's demonstrating to the Greeks that this unknown God that they ignorantly worship is extremely powerful and has a lot of authority. In fact, he has all power and all authority. He goes on to state that this creator, this all-powerful, sovereign God, can be discovered. This is important because in the the Hellenistic culture, the Greek culture of that day, they were highly influenced by a philosopher by the name of Plato. And Plato's philosophy on deity stated this, that, yes, there are there are there is a supernatural element to reality. There is a god or gods. It, it was really kind of interchangeable with Plato. <clears throat> but these gods are so far transcendent. They're so far above and beyond human knowledge or understanding that we can't know anything about them. We can't relate to them, and they won't relate to us. They're out there. They exist, but that's about all we'll ever know. We don't speak their name because their names are unknowable. We don't seek after them because there's no way we could find them. There's no way we can understand them if we did. That was the the Platonic philosophy of the Hellenistic culture. That's where the Greeks were at. And so for Paul to make a statement like this, there were a lot of, there were a lot of Jews, highly educated Jews that were a little bit embarrassed by their Old Testament God. Paul obviously was not embarrassed. He goes on to say that this this God, He affects things in this world. He moves, He acts, and He is knowable. We can search Him out. So this was a, this was a big deal to the Greeks. That we can feel after God, that we can find Him, that we can know Him, and that God is very close to us all the time. He's not, He's not transcendent in the Platonic sense. He's transcendent to be sure. He is above us. His thoughts are above us. But He makes Himself available to us. He's not transcendent in the sense that 
He's so far removed from us that we can't possibly know him. He'll never have a relationship with us. That's not true at all. He very much desires a relationship with us. Even though he is a transcendent God, even though he is all-powerful, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, he's perfect in every way. He desires to bring us to his to that level, to reflect in us his character, his image. We'll never be God, but he wants us to reflect his image, his character. Paul supports the Christian position using references from their own culture, as certain of your own poets have said. He concludes that because of these truths, God's word is supreme and must be obeyed. Verses 30 and 31. And that's also kind of the altar call. He confirmed the one by raising him from the dead. Jesus Christ. So why the different formats? Obviously because the listeners were different, the cultures were different, their understanding of truth was different. So they had to approach it differently. And the reason I bring this up is because Our culture today is becoming more and more Greek in understanding and in philosophy and less and less Jewish. Again, when I first came into church when I was a kid, everybody I went to school with went to church. They were Methodist or Presbyterian or Catholic or something. They went to church regularly. They hated it just like I did, bored them to tears just like it did me. But we went, and we got some understanding of Scripture. We knew who God was. We understood that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. We understood that he created everything. But today, people don't have that foundation. They don't have that understanding, that basic foundational uh Understanding of who God is, what he desires of us. They don't understand that. They don't know that he created anything. They don't know that the word of God is truth. And so when we approach them, we have to approach them where they're, where they're at, where they're coming from. And a a determination from us needs to be made. Where are you at right now? What's your, what's your religious experience? What do you know about God? What do you think about the Bible? Asking them questions like these helps you kind of get a, a ground zero, a baseline. So that from there, okay, this is where they're at. Now I know how to proceed. I know what they need yet before I can start expounding Scripture. Because if I just start expounding Scripture, Scripture is quick and powerful, but they have to be in a place where they can receive it, too. If they don't acknowledge Scripture as truth, I can teach them all the Bible studies I want. Hopefully they'll be nice and polite. But they're not going to do anything with it because they don't believe it.
if they believed it, they would act on it, right? But if they don't believe it, they're not going to act on it. So, we need to understand where they're coming from. Okay, this is a good demonstration of preaching to large groups of people, but what about one-on-one? What about my family member? What about my coworker? I'm not going to be preaching a sermon to them. How do we deal with that? Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 is a very interesting two passages of Scripture. It almost seems contradictory. Verse 4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. And then it goes on in verse 5 to say, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Okay, which one am I supposed to do? Both of them. That's right. Both of them. In a nutshell, how we're going to approach this is we are going to prove the truth, the veracity, the potency of Scripture by demonstrating the impossibility of the contrary. In other words, we're going to show people that without the biblical God, if God does not exist, if the Word of God is not true, then knowledge is impossible. It's impossible to know for sure anything. And we'll show that. There are scriptures, I should have put these in. There are scriptures in the Bible that say things like, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Without God, without the knowledge of God, We can't know anything for sure. In fact, we can't have an understanding of reality. We'll think we do. But if God is not true, if he doesn't exist, if this book is not true, it's just a collection of fables and myths, then we cannot understand creation. We cannot understand this universe, the laws, And we'll demonstrate that in just a little bit. So these two steps, the first one is answer not a fool according to his folly. We cannot adopt the unbeliever's position or belief system, or we're going to end up in the exact same place as them. Okay, so we're talking to a humanist, for example, because they're they're fun and easy to talk with. They're telling me that the Bible is, it's good teaching, but it's not from God. God doesn't exist. Scientists disprove the existence of God. They'll say something like that. And I will say, well, I don't accept that. I don't accept that as true. But then the next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly. Lest he be wise in his own conceit. I'll go on to say, but let's assume for a moment that your position is true. Let's say there is no God. Science has disproved it. Let's say the Bible is not true. 
then how would you explain this? How would you explain that? And it can be any number of things. We've, we've touched on some in this series already. Uh, how do you explain morality? Well, you know, I believe that murder is wrong. I do too. We agree on that. The difference is I can explain why I believe that. I'd like to hear from your worldview why you believe that. And they'll give you any number of, of answers, but their answers will either contradict other things that they say, or a favorite of theirs is they will borrow our worldview to argue against our worldview. People call it sitting on the lap of God to slap his face. They will borrow our position to argue against it. And they can't do that because they don't believe this is true. Okay, so we answer not a fool according to his folly. I don't accept your position as being true. And then we answer. But let's say it is true. How do you explain A, B, and C? Now, there is a myth the myth of neutrality, and both Christian and non-Christian can get wrapped up in this. And the myth goes, well, let's just find some common ground. Let's find something we both agree on, and we can springboard from there. Let's find some neutral position, and then we can move forward from that. That sounds nice. It sounds good. But the problem is, nobody's neutral. There are no neutral positions. Absolutely. They're asking you to give up your position and accept theirs. That's what they mean by some neutral territory. That's what always ends up happening. There is no neutral ground. There are no neutral positions. There's not. Every Everybody has a position, and it's not neutral. Everybody has a belief system. Everybody has presuppositions. Everybody has a worldview, and they're not neutral. They are emotionally vested in that to a greater or lesser extent, but they are, they are vested in that, and they will not be neutral, and we are not to be neutral. We are not to give any ground to the enemy. So don't don't accept any neutral positions, common ground. The myth of neutrality is just that. It's a myth. Why can't we accept the unbelievers' truth claims? Because they contradict Scripture. And if we're going to be consistent in our worldview, we have to reject anything that contradicts Scripture. Amen? We ought to already have had that settled in our hearts. That the Bible is my source for truth. It is the, it is the, the foundation upon which I build my life. Everything that I, that comes in, I filter through this book. If it, if it lines up, fantastic. We can move forward with it. 
I'll, I'll hear you out. But if it contradicts Scripture, I don't need to hear it. It's, it's not true. It's not true by definition. So now, answer a fool according to his folly. We're asking the unbeliever questions that we're forcing them. We're making them answer them according to their worldview. They will not want to answer according to their worldview because they will quickly realize they can't. They can't do it. Just think about it for a moment. Without God, just human beings running everything, how would you explain morality? Legislative process. Whatever makes the most amount of people happy. These are some of the definitions that they come up with. But why ought I obey? At the end of the day, (laughs) if there is no God, there is no heaven and hell, there's no eternal judgment, why should I obey any of these things? Yeah, it, it may best serve my personal interests to do that. But so what? It may not. It may be better for me just to go off on my own and and rob and steal. Why is that wrong? Well, because the majority says it's wrong. Well, what if I kill off most of the majority and now my majority is right? How about that? So you see, they have a, when you pin them down, they have a very difficult time coming out of that. And that's just one question. You could ask them anything. 50 years ago, homosexuality was wrong. Today it's, it's right and preaching against it is wrong. Why the change? Why ought I follow after this? Okay, so, basically we're looking at two things. We're looking for two things in their arguments. We're looking for arbitrariness and inconsistencies. Okay, and don't let these words scare you. They're harmless. They're friendly. Arbitrariness is basically spewing something out just because. Making an arbitrary comment or a statement. And we do this sometimes. I'll tell my kids, uh, yeah, you can stay up till 11 o'clock tonight because their friends are over. Why 11 o'clock? Why not 10.30? Why not 11.15? It's an arbitrary number. I just... I needed a number, so I came up with 11. I could have just as easily said 10.30, 11.30. But it's just an arbitrary number that I came up with. That's what that means. And people will come up with arbitrary statements. And we've mentioned one already. Well, the Bible is, it was translated by drunk monks in the early medieval 
period, and, and you know, who knows what they were thinking at the time. It just seems to make sense that uh, there's all kinds of stuff wrong with the Bible. Well, can you point anything out to me? No, no, I just, it just, it's it's got to be like that. It just makes sense. Well, <laughs> I can just as easily say, no, it doesn't. I can be arbitrary too then. There's no research done, no proofs given. They just make a statement. And then they expect us to have to defend against that. Well, no, I don't. It's a, you're being arbitrary. That, that doesn't even count in a debate or in the court of law or anything. You cannot be arbitrary. So we're, we're looking for that. Arbitrary statements. Well, it just seems to make sense that, you know, things evolved over a period of time. I mean, that's what the evidence says. That's what scientists say. Well, can you tell me the specific line of reasoning or the, the, the series of evidences that convinced you that that was true? Because I'd like to see it. They don't have it. No line of reasoning convinced them. They were taught that in school. And they're just regurgitating it. As an aside, one of the problems in our society today, the whole mess with free speech and fact-checking and all of this stuff, stems from the fact that most people in the world today don't know how to think. And what I mean by that is they can't look at an argument and deduce from it, is this, is this a sound argument or no? Anybody can say anything they want and they'll just eat it up. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, oh yeah. But if they would just stop to think about it, not even critically, just think about what's being said. You'd at least be like, well, they could have probably phrased that better. But if you start thinking critically, start asking questions about what's being said, you're like, well, that doesn't really make sense. Wait a minute. That doesn't make sense at all. But people don't do that today, by and large. We're not taught in public school how to think critically. We're taught what to think. And it's by design. There is a world system in place that doesn't want you to think critically. As Christians, and dare I say as a free people, we need to think critically. Certainly with something as important as salvation. Certainly something as important as foundational truth. We need to understand how to discern that. How to think critically. But even in, in more mundane things, what's being said on the news, what the, the president is saying. 
what this person, what that person is saying. We need, we need to be able to filter it through scripture and we need to be able to look at it with a critical eye and be able to ask critical questions. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with asking pointed questions about things that come to our ears. So when these worldviews start popping up, and our family members, our co-workers, and you can kind of get the first hint that their worldview isn't scriptural because they'll say something that's not scriptural. They can claim to be Christian and believe in abortion or believe in homosexuality or any number of things. So now, we've got some questions to ask, don't we? You say you're a Christian. I don't see any support for that in Scripture. How did you arrive at that? Okay, so that arbitrariness. We're also looking for inconsistencies. For example... Believing in determinism while at the same time wanting to hold someone accountable for his actions. The example is uh, someone believes that everything everything that I do, I, I there there is no free will. Determinism, there is no free will. Uh, your your choices are basically made for you because of environment, genes. Uh, you have no control over what you do. There are people that teach this in school. In colleges. But if you cheat on a test, they'll want to hold you accountable for it. If they come in and, and murder their spouse, they're going to want to be held, that person to be held accountable for it. That's an inconsistency. You don't believe that. You told us in class just last week that's not true. He can't help what he did. Was that true or was it not true? That's an inconsistency. A real easy one is, is someone that believes in relativism. Truth is unknowable. There is no truth. All he got to do with that one and say, is that statement true? Because if it is, it's not. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, And that's what I mean by being able to ask questions. And then we can go forward from there and say, well, yes, we agree that murder is wrong. You've done your best to, to try to explain it from your worldview. My worldview is we were created in the image and likeness of God. God places a very high premium on human life. He doesn't want anybody killing anyone else because that snuffs out the image of God. And in fact, if someone does, they are to pay for it with their own life. That's how serious an offense it is in the sight of God. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. That's right there in the Bible. Under the Mosaic Covenant. Same thing. 
The Revenger of Blood. Whole chapters dedicated to that. Cities of Refuge. <clears throat> so we can explain it very easily. And it's not arbitrary. And it's not inconsistent. You'll find that with every question that we pop up. There is no arbitrariness in the Christian worldview. There are no inconsistencies. There are seeming inconsistencies, but easily explained if you just dig into it a little bit. In every other worldview, you will find arbitrariness or inconsistencies. And the reason for that is because only through Scripture, only through an understanding of who God is, can we adequately explain reality. That's the only way we can do it. This was created by the Word of God. God spoke, and it came into existence. So God's Word should line up with reality. It should line up with creation. And it does. All the way through, it does. It explains reality perfectly. With no arbitrariness and with no inconsistencies. If anyone has any questions on that or wants any more information on that, I can give that to you. Okay. In conclusion, our scripture text that we read uh, at, at the first that we haven't even touched on yet, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. When we come to the Lord, the worldviews that we used to have go away. They need to go away. The worldview that I had, I thought was a biblical worldview. If you'd have asked me, yeah, I love God. Yeah, I believe the Bible is true. But I would have... Two, maybe three questions later, I'd have been like, maybe I don't. Echo, echo, echo. Okay, so, my worldview was not biblical. It was not scriptural. I thought it was, but it wasn't. I wasn't living like it was true. I didn't pray. I didn't look into the Word of God to see if what I was doing pleased God or not. I didn't really care. Can I be honest? That never, it's not that I had an act of hostility against God. It just never came into my mind to think about it. It wasn't a consideration. I did not have a scriptural, biblical worldview. I had some other worldview. Something else was more important. So when I came to the Lord, that had to change. I had to start thinking like God thought. I had to start lining myself with the Word of God. All of us do that. It's God's will for each of us to be an accurate representation of Him to this world. To be an effectual ambassador of Jesus Christ. Not only reflecting who He is, but demonstrating to this world who God is. We need to be able to demonstrate Jesus Christ, not just talk about him. And so, 
2 Corinthians 5.17, talking about you're a new creature, old things are passed away, all things are become new. That includes my worldview. The way I think about reality needs to be different. It needs to line up with Scripture now. Everything needs to be different. Because I am a new creature. And that means also that this new worldview, I'm not just incorporating that into my old one. Okay, I got all of this other stuff. Now I got to come to church. That's wrong. That's the wrong way to think about it. All of this other stuff, and now I have church too, is not correct. Because I identify differently now. I identify as a son of God, as a child of God. That's my identity now. That's your identity. So now, this is my life. And I've got to take care of these things too. If this falls completely apart, before that would, that would devastate me. Because that was my life. I identified with my job or with my education or with something else. But because I identify with Jesus Christ now, whatever happens over here, that's okay. I want, I want to, to make the best of that. I want to be a good witness. I want to be faithful. I want to, I want to be a good steward. All of those things. But if I'm doing my best and this falls through the, the floor, I'm okay. I know that God has me. I'm still a child of God. I still have an eternity to spend with Him. So this isn't, I'm not just incorporating some additional information into my old worldview. A lot of Christians end up doing that. And that's not right. We need to completely forsake those old worldviews because they are false. They're wrong. They do not hold up. They are sinking sand, like the Bible says. If you build your life on any one of those, it's going to crumble and fall. I don't know when, but at some point it will. We are to completely embrace our new lives and completely forsake the old ones. At least in my life, there was... There was nothing good to go back to. And I have come to thank God for that. I don't want it anyway, but there's just, there's just nothing there for me. We are called to be Christ-like. God wants us to be powerfully, and uh, he wants us to powerfully and effectively demonstrate him to this world. He wants us to think like he thinks, to speak like he speaks, and to see and to feel as he does. He wants us to be Christ-like all the way around, to be completely new creatures in him. Amen. Let's all stand. Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful for you and for your so great salvation. 
You have drawn us with cords of love to a place of repentance unto salvation.